Welcome to the Classical Voice Training Podcast, the home of tips, tricks, and techniques. I'm James Platt, and I'll be your guide to the weird and wonderful world of classical voice. Join me every Tuesday for interviews, exercises, training tips, and much, much more. So welcome everyone to this, our first classical voice training podcast. Um, we've been talking for a while about engaging more with our digital audience. And we thought a podcast might be a nice way for those to have a look at what we're doing and for us to talk about all things voice. So I'm joined by my mentor, singing teacher, voice researcher, Janice Chapman. Hi, Janice. Hi, James. Good to be Do here. You tell people at home a bit about, about, about you and your work, which sort of started this whole company off? Uh, well, just briefly, um, a long, long way back, I was a, a, an opera singer. Um, <laughs> started rather well got muddled up, uh, like a lot of singers do, especially with the teaching that was around in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, went off track, discovered that I would have to find out how the blooming machinery worked if I was ever going to fix anything, because my particular sort of brain kept telling me that I didn't know how it worked and therefore I couldn't do it again tomorrow. And that was the, <laughs> that was the constant little gremlin in my ear, which actually led me to um, make this leap into getting involved with the multidisciplinary work and actually discovering what a fascinating and fabulous setup the lungs and larynx are in the human being. And what an extraordinary art form it is that we've evolved this machine, this big machine and little machine together into an art form, able to move people to tears and joy and frustration and everything else. <laughs> but uh, when we understand how it works, how much more exciting it is both to sing with it and to teach it. We started classical voice training. You've got the three directors of classical voice training here, me, Janice, and Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Hello, James. Hello, Jan. Hello, listeners. Do you want to tell us a bit about, about your background, Andrew, particularly about your still training? Sure. My background is very different to Janice. I was never a professional performer. I briefly did some very small roles and, and chorus parts professionally. So my background is more from the, the teaching perspective. It was never very musical. I was always kind of more drawn to science and maths, etc. Um, so coming to the Estill perspective, when I first came across Estill, well, A, it frightened me to death because it seemed so complex, but B, it fascinated me and intrigued me. And like Janice says about, I needed to know how things worked. And my singing lessons were quite frustrating in that I would say, well, what are you talking about? How does that work? And the teachers would say, oh, you don't need to know that. I thought, well, actually, I do. And if I didn't want to know, I wouldn't ask the question. And it took me a while to realise that actually they didn't know the answer to the question. So that's I, the problem. Exactly, yeah. And I was probably quite an annoying pupil for those teachers. Um, so I thought I'll find the answers for myself. And the Estill model, the Estill perspective really clicked with me, being a, a little bit more rigorous and scientific and evidence-based. And I assumed that most classical training was done by the kind of demonstration imitation method and it was only when I met Janice through James that I realized actually there were some classical teachers that had the same perspective which was which was great and when we came to, to form classical voice training to have that mindset of 
you know, Janice and James, both performers that got that instinct, but also voice researchers. And we just found that that intersection of the three of us worked really well. And I still on the, the research and the evidence-based side of things. Um, but between the three of us, we, we cover all bases, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, we do. And of course, Janice, you met Joe. You, you were responsible for bringing Joe over to the UK for the first time. Do you want to tell us a bit about how that came about? Well, uh, yes, I can't say I was responsible, but I, um, it was the early days of the voice, the voice Research Society into the British Voice Association, which it eventually became. And um, there was this question of bringing Joe over from America to do a, to do a, a week of workshops. And um, it was going to cost the um, young association quite a bit of money. And um, I had to lean quite heavily. I was president at the time. I leaned quite heavily on the person who had control of the funding. But you were sort of responsible, Janice. As I, well, I, I kind of leaned and he caved eventually and we got Joe over for that week. And it was absolutely what we needed. It was fascinating. We did it in um, the centre of London in Hughes Perry Hall, which is sort of University College. And... Um, we stayed in the building, which was student accommodation, and we talked and carried on together for a week of immensely enlightening information. Um, and then we brought her back again the following year to do the same thing again. And that was the opening up of a, a tremendous amount of um, really potent uh, information, which was going to feed into both how we performed, how we sang, and more particularly how we went forward as teachers or researchers or um, mentors of other singers. And that, those early days, I mean, w w was this the first time people were really exploring the mechanism of voice and how it worked and the individual uh, components? Absolutely, yes. Um, and as you say, uh, Andrew, evidence-based was the key and the American community were way ahead. There was very little going on in this country. There was not money for that and there was not an interest in it. But the Americans are way ahead. And even though Joe herself was a little bit of a um, renegade in a funny kind of way, she was out there doing her thing and not all the American researchers liked what she was doing. Mm -hmm. And to this day, there's still some um, to and fro on that. But Basically, she broke down barriers which were then um, made valid by the fact that you could put a fiber optic endoscope down and have a look at a larynx in a live singer. And that was just crucial at that time. And she had a lot of instinct about, about the nature of singing um, and the nature of the way the voice worked. And so a lot of what she discovered and others around her formed a great deal of the basis of how the American system went forward. And this was also then carried on over into work in Sweden, in Japan, and in Australia. It's, I, I find it so interesting that, you know, as a, as a voice researcher but, researcher, but also as a professional singer, you know, I think we talk a lot about anxiety and singers experiencing great anxiety when they perform. And, and I found that those singers that have a really solid technique and actually understand what they're doing often don't experience the same level of anxiety when they perform, do they? No, I think not. It just depends, of course, what, what experiences they've had and what their psychological makeup is. But 
just lately, um, I think I had posted on Facebook a, a clip of Birgit Nilsson singing the uh, immolation scene from Goethe Dammerung on the opening of the Sydney Opera House uh, with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. And she stood there absolutely solid, you know, with the straightest back I think I've ever seen. And out came these absolutely glorious phrases, full of emotion, full of integrity, full of musicality, every bit of the text clear, every sound matching. And it was the efficiency and the power and the beauty all rolled into one that was so staggering uh, to hear that. She had, she had been her own teacher in a way. She shut herself away on, during her journey and she became this wonderful, solid rock that had a perfect technique and from that perfect technique which was so efficient she could do pretty much anything it was absolutely amazing and that to me is the most moving thing because having a really efficient instrument which you know what's going to come out of your mouth gives you then the ability to forget all about the technique and get on with the artistry and that's exactly what's happening when you watch that video for example staggering absolutely and i mean andrew andrew and i sort of started our still training within within a couple of years each of each other i suppose didn't we andrew was my first singing teacher and um it had a huge impact on i think everything we did there on and it, that is what actually brought me to janice in the end as well through um paul farrington andrew when we think about a still we think about it very much as a model of working don't we how how do you feel um, today, that model, we need to expand on that model, and how has that model expanded in light of more recent developments in voice? Sure, I, th I mean, as it was explained to me, and we explain it on the on our courses, a model is a useful construction, but it's it's an artifice. You know, an architect's model of your house explains where things will go, but you can't use the sink, the bathroom. Yeah, <laughs> so it helps you get a hand on things. So <laughs> models are limited. So the Estelle model, yeah, it's a great way to, to hang, hang things on there and understand the overall concepts. How things have moved, it, it, this gets us into kind of contentious territory, really. I think if Joe was still alive today, things would have moved on a little. Things would have become absorbed. The, the more modern research in the things we talk about, like Natalie Henrik's research, uh, Ken Bozeman's research, etc., I think there'd be more of a tendency to absorb new information as we said before, Joe was rigorously about the evidence and the science. So she wouldn't, I don't think she would. I never met Joe, Janice did. I never met her, unfortunately. She, she died soon after I, I, I certified. But my understanding of it is that she would have been on top of the new research, the way that we're trying to be. So as an organization, I think things tend to get stuck. It's, it's a very slow moving organization and wishing to be respectful to Joe and Joe's work and Joe's memory, maybe there's a reluctance to move things forward in the way that maybe she would have. I can't speak for us still as an organization, but from my perspective, I don't see how the, the research that we've done recently contradicts any of the Estill model. It just reinforms certain aspects of it and, and makes more sense. That, that's my personal opinion, taking my Estill certified teacher hat off. That's my personal opinion. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, talking about reassessing things, I mean, the whole of the voice science world was sort of blown apart fairly recently with this idea of, of a non-linear voice theory, which is what we very much work on in our courses now, essentially everything affecting everything else. Um, whereas previously in voice science, we adopted a more linear theory of 
power source filter, the interactions between those groups have become even more important. I mean, I'll throw this out to both of you. How, how is that affected how we now work, maybe? Well, I will say, uh, just to chip in, that on my very first still course, the concept of dynamical systems was introduced, and it, that concept of everything affects everything else was embedded within that. I think we talk about power source filter because we have to teach any model in a linear fashion. Yeah. <laughs> because it's, time moves in a straight line. We have to do it that way. But I don't think it was ever um, explained as this happens, then this happens, then this happens, but rather understanding those things individually, but they work collectively. To me, that was always in the Estill model. It's in our model as well. So I don't see that as a contradiction. Maybe, again, more clarification. Of course, yeah. as, we, as we've had uh, new research come in, absolutely. And I mean, Janice, your, the work you've done on breathing, particularly, yeah. and recognising that changes in the respiratory system have profound effects on the vocal folds and the resonance has yeah. been a, a hallmark. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, um, this is where Joe and I, um, well, Pamela Davis and I uh, had to part with Joe because Joe wouldn't take on board anything to do with breathing and support. She didn't like the concept. But during the first course that we did, um, she was demonstrating some primal triggers for getting the sounds that she wanted. And I asked the question of what, what was she doing with support? Um, and she said, nothing, nothing at all, you know. So I was um, brave enough or foolhardy enough to say, Joe, do you mind if I come and put my hands on your torso, please, for a moment? No, no, that's fine. Come on, out you come. So I went and I put my hands around her abdominal girdle and as she prepared to make a primal sound, uh, as she prepared to make a trigger like whine or cry or something, yeah. her body leapt into the most perfect um, supported condition. Now, she thought nothing was happening, but with my hands there, I could feel that that body was so schooled that it was doing it automatically. And this is what, what happens a lot of the time when singers have been trained they eventually think they're not doing anything. And this is a problem of singers maybe who have wonderful careers as singers but then turn to teaching and don't recognise the fact that their bodies behave very differently to their students' bodies because their students haven't been geared up to use the, these muscular systems. So that for me was really pivotal. I knew that I could put everything I'd learned from Joe, which was a massive amount, on top of the work that Pamela Davis and I were doing on what was going on in the abdominal uh, muscle girdle and the pelvic floor of the uh, professional opera singers that we were testing in Sydney in, as part of our research. And um, I, I, I came out of that whole experience knowing that if a, a singer had been taught to breathe in incorrectly, for example, to bring in the exhalatory muscles as they breathed in. So on inspiration to jam on basically what would eventually be, be needed for exhalation, uh, that they would stuff up the system basically. And that was what was happening a great deal. 
Some very famous teachers have taught this inhalation and there's still a lot of teaching going on where you breathe in and you basically engage exhalatory muscles on the in-breath. Now this is, is ultimately ruinous because there are pressure receptors in the chest wall which tell your throat to close. And that's the last thing you want. You want an open throat. You want a, a, a lovely, clear resonator, um, convergent resonator for classical singing. And you're not going to get that if you breathe in incorrectly. So there were all sorts of things that came out of that awareness for me that I really had to continue to, to go in my own direction while paying a lot of attention to the wonderful things that Joe had taught us about what happened from you know, the, the chest upwards, really. Mm. And what about you, James? I mean, did you have that experience too? Yeah, I, I mean, my I think it, it's an argument that's still going on to this day. You know, some singing teachers think breathing and certainly the word support is a dirty word. And I think it sort of comes from this idea that, you know, we, to support, we just throw a lot more air up at the vocal folds. And of course, it's, it's much more subtle than that. So some people try to throw it out the window. Uh, but th this understanding that, you know, when the airflow is appropriate to pitch and volume, then we get a really efficient um, vocalization going. And I think, you know, for, for singers in this day and age to discount the importance of, I'm not saying you still do this, by the way, but there are still a lot of singing teachers that discount support and its training and i think it's you know without those without that basic muscular support appropriate muscular support in place we get in trouble don't we yeah i mean joe had it right when she talked about um torso anchoring uh, getting the latissimus dorsi and the quadratus lumborum engaged and and that's very very valuable um but if you have been taught to breathe um, incorrectly, to breathe in incorrectly. All the anchoring in the world isn't going to help you. And there are neurological reasons as well as physical reasons. Certainly now we know. Hey, aren't they? Yeah. And we, we had our course recently and we sort of were looking again at primal sound and its connections and how, you know, the, the breathing is controlled by the brain stem. So if we consciously get in the way of that inhalation process by jamming the wrong muscles on consciously, all sorts of things that would normally happen naturally don't take place and we lose that efficiency. Um, and we had a great course talking about that. I mean, recently on, on Zoom, didn't we? Yes. One of the things I thought we could talk about as well is obviously we're in this very strange position at the moment with COVID where we're not able to um, do the sort of one-on-one, -on -one, hands-on work in person that we would normally do. Um, so we've moved online. So, I mean, what? how have we all been coping or adjusting to that change? What about you, Andrew? How have you been? I, I, again, I think we've had this discussion before that I found Zoom surprisingly liberating for me. I, I used to hate doing online lessons. I've grown to enjoy this. And I've had, honestly, a big success with people who I've never worked with before. Well, I, I had to think about how do I frame these sessions now? How do I know what the limits of your voice are? I'm falling back on that concept of effort levels and again, self-palpation and asking for that feedback all the time. Well, how hard are you working there? How hard are you working here? Which different parts of your body are working at the same time and, and yeah. feedback? And that's, that's obviously the, the only way you can work uh, online Absolutely. with Zoom. And in the last workshop that we did, the, the breathing and support workshop, where we introduced your palpation protocol, James, to ask people, you know, and it's, and it's, it's, it's straightforward. It's like, well, just give me an estimation. Are things moving? 
how hard are they moving? What direction are they moving in? <laughs> exactly, yeah. and ask for that. So I, I found it actually, um, I say surprise, I, I got a review from someone, from people on on, uh, on Google saying they've been surprisingly brilliant is what he said. Whoa. Unexpected, obviously always having worked face to face, he's found yeah. that the lessons were really useful. So um, certainly on, on our courses, our workshops, this is how it's going to have to be for this year, where we mm -hmm. normally get stand up behind people and put our hands on pupils. We, I think we've had enough experience now for the past, what, 100 days, as they say, right. in lockdown. Mm -hmm. that we, even on an online version of our practical SATS course, we will be able to get useful feedback from, from the participants. Yeah. yeah. Not exactly the same, but still be, be very efficient and very functional, I think. And again, we're very pro students um, becoming autonomous, aren't we? And students being able to look after themselves um, without constant supervision from us once they've had a, a basic level of training. And I think in a weird sort of way, doing things on Zoom, we have to do that. The students have to understand exactly what they're doing, how to do it, how to check that they're doing it properly, because we can't do it for them, can we? Exactly, exactly. What about you, Janice? How have you been well, doing it? Yeah, you have to upgrade your, um, your the detail of what you're, the instructions you're giving. So um, I found a way, which I know is quite common, um, commonly used. If you sit on a dining room table chair, like a, a dining room chair, and you put your hands under the seat of the chair, yeah, and absolutely with your shoulders down and your hands underneath the chair about the level of your bottom, and you try and pick the chair up, you're going to engage all these back muscles beautifully. Now, I wouldn't have used that. I'd have had my hands there, but feeling whether the student was connecting to this abdominal girdle area. But when they do that, that pretend to pick yourself up on the chair, mm. um, I can see very clearly if they're doing it right, um, they can sit, they can test it out themselves. They immediately can feedback what a difference it is. And of course, I can hear the change in the way they're moving between the notes and in the effort level that's going on in their vocal tract. Mm. So it, it's we're finding new and better ways to be really precise about what we're asking students to do and getting the feedback from that. Absolutely. And I was going to say, you get a very personal view of somebody's face and torso. <laughs> And if you're looking at them on a screen in, in quite a closed environment, a you know, you, you notice every little detail, don't you? Oh, you do, yes. It's, it's, the twitches around the mouth are particularly telling because, uh, as Ron Morris would tell you, you know, if you um, pull on the buckle muscles on the top lip and the cheeks, for example, you actually interfere with the way the soft palate is behaving. So those little twitches are very important. And of course, what's been revealing to me is that in a room, in a singing lesson, I might have missed that twitch. Yeah. And on camera, my God, I don't miss anything. Anything. <laughs> in full HD. Yeah, exactly. I'll be honest with you, I, I'm thinking now, um, this is a, a random thought here now, that when people come to our studios for lessons, mm. there's a lot of pressure on them to perform for an hour. They've made a commitment in terms of, of flying in, driving in, and the train, and suddenly the pressure's on the pupil and the teacher. This hour has to be worthwhile. Yeah. Zoom, because they're just zooming in in the middle of the day from the bedroom, from the kitchen. There's much less pressure, and you get a lot more, you get less done, but in much more detail, I find. And I'm thinking now whether or not, again, 
I, I, we could all work worldwide. We could get a much wider clientele by working on Zoom. You know, sh should we be stuck with only working face to face with people who can find their way to our studios? I'm really thinking, wondering now about where, where I go with this in the future. If this lasts for another six, 12 months, you know, most of my business will be online. Mm -hmm. I can expand my clientele to the stage where I wouldn't actually need to go back to face to face, but for maybe no more than 10%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really finding the advantage now, which I'd never thought I would do. Never thought of. No. Well, my uh, European clients are thrilled, of course, because they don't have the expense of flying in to see at the hotel, stopping overnight and paying a lot of money for a singing lesson, which they were doing, you know. Now they're, we're developing this uh, way of working online. I, I seem to be uh, having people come in on um, FaceTime and, and uh, Skype a lot, a lot more often, a lot more... Of, um, well, it's just proving more efficient, basically. Mm. Uh, I do need some time, though, to go and hear them in the flesh because with opera singers, um, I have to be sure that they're delivering across an orchestra. Of course, yeah. uh, and I can't do that. You can't, you can't mitigate for the uh, technology, can you? And that doesn't they at the moment, can they? They can't sing with an orchestra, sir. Exactly, you can't, <laughs> they can't sing with an orchestra. Janice can be in the audience listening. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that may be an advantage for me because, again, the, the bulk of my clients are, are more theatre and, and CCM, so they always come through a mic anyway. So it's, it's you know, the MO, so things are okay. It's easy, Andrew, then. That's... I do. I'd never describe my job as easy, but maybe easier than yours, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's forcing us to be creative in different ways. And, you know, I, 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 I've talked before online before all of this happened, but I mean, we refine our methods, don't we? Yeah. It's adapt or die, isn't it? And I, I think, again, the, the, the big outcome of this will be that pupils, as Janice says, will realise actually you don't necessarily need to make that commitment to come face to face for every lesson. Other ways we can work, people could, could record themselves, you know, in, in, in HD on their iPads, mm -hmm. send it to us for assessments. We could then look at things and then now and again have a face to face, now and again have an online lesson. Mm -hmm. I think we're all going to adapt the way we work and it will be to the, to the, the benefit of the pupils, I think. Absolutely. Such yeah. an interesting, interesting time, isn't it? Yeah, I think my younger students, um, Guildhall students particularly, have benefited from my doing a half hour regularly, a half hour intensive rather than, a, you know, an hour once a fortnight. That was, this is very much more potent. I agree, I agree. And it sort of um, neatly separates out because at the moment, you know, I mean, there is technology out there to allow us to have a pianist with fairly low latency, but I think most of us are working technically intensely for half an hour. And I think, you know, that it forces us to do that, but actually that's very, very beneficial for the singers, isn't it? Yeah. Get too bogged down with repertoire and to have a real technical session. But I, th I think, therefore, the... Those of us who are technically minded, as, as we three are, come to the fore because teachers that, that re rely on magical rep to solve problems yeah. will get caught out. If all you do is play through songs and if yeah. people are now in, in front of you looking at you to give them solutions to very specific problems. So the more technical awareness you have as a teacher, the more beneficial you can be and more effective you can be for your, for your pupils. I think this actually, you know, What's the what's the Chinese the opposite word of crisis is opportunity. 
I think we found the opportunity in the crisis. Yeah. It actually does play to our strengths. Mm. It does. Yeah. So, moving on, I mean, we've been reviewing, um, the three of us recently, what we're doing with laryngeal and acoustic registration, and there's been a lot of new research uh, recently that we're, we're including. Um, so I'll, let's talk a bit about that. I mean, um, originally, uh, we, the still uh, model uses the body cover uh, model of, of voice, uh, voice production, doesn't it, Andrew, looking at the body and the cover of the vocal folds as a way of defining registers. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Again, that's uh, things from Pirano, I think, originally. Absolutely, yeah. The body cover principle. Uh, so that's where I came from with all this. And that was a massive revelation to me, as in like, you know, head voice, chest voice, although they're terms that are still prevalent. To me, it never made sense. I couldn't feel that my voice was in my head or in my chest. I always felt there was something wrong with that model. And when I came across the S still, um, and again, the body cover, the true vocal fold body cover condition, that made far more sense. About You can define the sound at a laryngeal level based on how the vocal folds are vibrating. That was a revelation to me. Um, and the, the more modern research, again, from Natalie Henrik and, and others, goes into great detail using that body cover model to say, well, yeah, there are actually four different ways the vocal folds can vibrate. Um, and that then forms the basis of what, what, what originally you'd have thought of as a register. And the problem with this is going to be murky waters with registers, as we'll cover in our workshop next week. A register means different things to different people. Does it mean a series of notes with similar sound or produced in the same way? And again, when I, my scientific method was always like, no, it's laryngeal, it's laryngeal, it's laryngeal. And then when I met Janice, it was like, well, no, it's not just laryngeal. And we had this intu intu intuitive model of scientific registers and singing voice registers, which was, again, a revelation for me. And I did, probably you'll agree, I did fight against that for quite a long time. <laughs> it's like, no, what the lines do? What the vocal folds do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what we've come to recently is that that kind of again the, the intersection but you can't ignore either it's not purely a, a, a source thing or a filter thing it's a combination of both and the, the, the research that we we've um, we've all read recently and absorbed into our teaching just again redefines the fact that our intuition was correct on this one yeah. you know, the, the, the vocal folds do one thing but the sound that goes into the vocal tract uh, can be shaped in many different ways. So when people talk about head voice and head register, that's very confusing because they mean different things. Mm. The overall voice quality is is literally a recipe made of different components. One of which is the vocal track setting. One of which is the is the vocal sorry the vocal track set the vocal fold vibration pattern. And understanding mm. those two things separately helps you then to understand how they combine. And in the first edition of SATS, Jan, obviously you already had this work by Natalie um, looking at uh, the, the definition of laryngeal vibratory mechanisms, M0, M1, M2, M3. Can you talk us a bit about how you found that and, and how useful you found that in the early days when you started to incorporate it in, in, into your teaching? Well, it was essential, really, because it was <clears throat> very clearly defined. You can recognise vocal fry, you can recognise M1, M2, M3. Um, and I, I was interested in how to get it, how to get people in and out of those different um, vocal mechanisms efficiently. So I, I wasn't so interested in what showed up on 
the equipment um, on the scoreboard. On the, oh yes, or on the oscilloscope or the spectrographic equipment. I've, except that when I was in America once, I did see a three D version. Um, and that really blew my mind because that one I could understand because it had peaks and troughs in three dimensions. And that was the only time it really made sense to me, I have to admit, mm. as a singer. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So I realised I was so out of my depth, it was so complex. I kind of shut my mind down a little bit and went with what I knew worked. Yes. And how I explained it and how I taught it, it turns out was pretty good. Um, for example, when somebody is in M1, which is the speaking voice register for a female, for example, what, what I'm speaking to you in now, we have the possibility to disguise for a few notes, disguise the fact that we're singing that register by changing the setting of the acoustic part of the vocal tract. So we can fool everybody except our singing teacher maybe. <laughs> as to what voice we're in. Now, Natalie's calling that M1X or M2X, and she's defining it in a good way because sometimes as we're coming down in M2, which is middle voice for us uh, singers, um, you can put a sort of M1 quality into that. So that would be M2X, and M1X would be what we used to call chest register or chest voice with a shape that disguised the fact that we were in that register and then matched and mixed very much better with M2. So this kind of discussion has been bashing on for years. And the reason I came up with the idea that we should have two ways of describing registration was on, I, I listened to, to a number of um, scientists arguing with each other and I thought they're never ever gonna agree on this. And we singing teachers are never going to agree either. So we need two ways of describing it. That's so exactly right. This leads us nicely into what we're going to talk about on our workshop on Friday the 10th of July. Um, hopefully to make you less confused, not more confused. <laughs> Absolutely. And to demonstrate it in a way that you can deal with it in your studio or deal with it in your singing. There's a certain amount of, of uh, kind of science behind this acoustical science that we'll we'll introduce in you know and and in as simplistic terms as possible, and the workshop will be divided into like understanding the principles, but then we will ensure that everyone understands what relevance this is to you as a teacher and to you as a singer, and the practical application of the science is what the day is all about. I think we we need to go in to understand the science to an extent. Yeah. It, and it's it's not that complex. It's not rocket science. It's not quantum mechanics. It's just basically an intersection of, of two separate ingredients that, that form a multitude of, of different recipes and what we think of then as. I think the problem is it's a terminology problem that register means different things, as Jan said, to different people. We yeah. can clarify that very simply by saying, well, there's a laryngeal element and a vocal tract element. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really important as well when you're looking at understanding male and female registration. So Janice was just talking about female registration, where 
middle voice will maybe in M2 still and chest voice will be in M1. But of course, as men, we spend, you know, I'm not counter tennis, but baritones, basses, tennis, we spend all of our lives in M1 and, and, and modifying M1 at the top of the voice and at the bottom of the voice. So whereas the middle register for men will still be very much in M1, the middle register for females will be in M2. Now, if you get those mixed up in the way that you're trying to teach a singer, you're going to get into trouble very quickly. <laughs> have them in the wrong again, with that concept of, of, of mixed voice or a mixed register, that's where it gets confusing. Yeah, from a kinesthetic point of view, from a singer's point of view, it does feel like there's something in between um, old terms, chest and head, or M1, M2. But in fact, singers intuitively know that, that it's either, as you say, a reduced intensity M1, an MX1, or an increased intensity M2, MX2. And that's how the, the, the middle of the voice works, the transition between the two registers. And it's not a separate register. It's actually a vocal technique that you employ in the, the series of notes where you could be in either M1 or M2. Understanding that is, is, is vital, I think, for singers. And the way they, they feel those vocal track shape changes, as we've discussed before, the concept of cover or turning over the voice is again very definable. It's very scientifically understandable, and hopefully we can shine a light on that for everyone a week on Friday. Absolutely. So I mean, come and join us if if you're interested in laryngeal and acoustic registration. I think all singers and teachers should be pretty interested because it's it's our meat and drink for for everything that we do, really, isn't it? And it gives yeah. us a whole. Um, and it's a very low cost. Uh, program isn't it 60 pounds for um you know a four-hour workshop two hours in the morning two hours in the afternoon um we're going to be running it on zoom have a look at our website www.classicalvoicetraining.com you'll be able to book and you'll receive an email with you with your signing details for that so we hope to to see you there um and we've had a lot of friends and colleagues from around the world who might not be able to attend because of time zone or or other commitments. So if if you're in that category, please let us know and we can uh, plug you into a recording that you can watch when when you're ready sort of thing. But it's been really interesting, hasn't it? I mean, going from uh, our live courses, which are no, normally very hands on, and obviously we've had to cancel those this year, but finding these new ways to engage with people. Um, it's been really interesting for us, isn't it? Yes, it has. And um, when we do the courses in the summer, um, in what's the dates again? August. Yeah, but the first course that will be the 3rd to the 7th of August, which is our practical course, and our pedagogy course will be the 10th to the 14th of August on Zoom. And that will be, we'll be doing in much more depth um, and in detail. And hopefully a lower, a lowish number of people taking part means that we will be able to go individually to everybody. Um, so it's going to be tailor-made, you know, for people who really want to know what's going on, both within their singing and within their teaching studios. And much, much cheaper than having to stay in a hotel and travel to a, another city, of course. Absolutely. And I mean, also having this information packaged in the way that we package it is quite rare to be able to have a real solid overview from from a practical point of view for our first course and then from a, a teaching pedagogical point of view in more detail for the second course i mean it, to get it all in in a in a intense way over five days i think it's a really good way to really dive into the information isn't it joe yes it is indeed of course all of the courses that we are based on janice's book 
which is singing and teaching singing, a holistic approach to classical voice. SAT, James, S-A-T-S. We always call it SAT. So, yeah. So, Jan, tell us a bit about, about the evolution of SAT. So, you're, you're now on your third edition? Yeah, we're working on the fourth edition now um, for next year. Um, yes, I, I mean, we came together really the Australians I was working with, um, the head of voice at uh, Queen, in Griffith University, um, Queensland Conservatorium, Margaret Schindler had been over and Anna Connolly from Victoria and, and other people, um, Rowena Cowley from Sydney, lots of people. And I was going out to Australia a lot. And um, this, the Australian contingent were very keen for me to write some, something down and they delegated Ron Morris to come over and squeeze me from the bottom to get my stuff into, <laughs> into a readable form. And um, the publisher, plural, uh, with singular press at the time, were very keen. They hadn't had anything like that at all when the first edition came out. It was the first one of that type. So um, Ron and I worked on it together. Now, for this fourth edition, Ron has agreed to become joint author in case I kick the bucket in the next couple of years um, and Ron can take over. I'm not planning to, but you never know with all this stuff going on, do you? Um, and um, we've been able to really update this fourth edition in light of neuroscience. Now, who would have thought, you know, all these years ago that it would all come round to this point where singing and teaching singing and the ethos within that pedagogical model would turn out to have a really valid backup in terms of neuroscience. And we're all really grateful and immensely relieved in a way that the things that we we knew intuitively are now becoming evidence based. Um, so it's uh, it's quite exciting to be working on a fourth edition, except it's it's going to be very hard work again when the neuroscience now is backing up some of the information that we we had with Pamela Davis uh, and I initially when we did some research in Sydney, talking about the parts of the brain that fired up. Um, like the periaqueductal grey, which is like a mixing bowl uh, where primal sound emotions, all sorts of things come in and go out again. And everything, everything's mixed in there. The, the breathing patterns coming from the brain stem, the intuitive stuff, the emotional imagination, the emotional motor system, all the things that we recognize when somebody sings to us that are present in the best kind of singing. And it doesn't matter what genre you're singing in, this, this evidence of this feeling that you get when primal sound underpins what you're saying has got some very great power to emotionally connect with other human beings. So it's 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 a very exciting time for us uh, in a way and to be doing the fourth edition for next year is also a, a, a really exciting project oh, absolutely jenna and i've been looking at a lot of the research again and it's it's really good to be looking at, at it all again in light of some of these new developments um i'm very grateful that james is out of work at the moment don't tell him i said so but <laughs> He's, he's got time to, to to help me hugely with this because it needs a younger brain than mine now. 
But it, it's interesting, Janice, often we've been talking recently on some of our lives about uh, Stephen Porges and the work he's done. And we're really beginning to understand now what stage presence is and what what is that X factor, that thing that when we hear great singing in any genre, we're drawn to it. And it's to do with our evolution as mammals, to do with our social engagement system and how we have evolved as a species, but it's crystallized in, in, in singing, which is one of the reasons people pay £280 for a ticket at, at the Royal Opera House, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's um, a very special thing when it's right. Mm. Yes, it's hard to quantify, but it's getting easier. Yeah, and we're getting much more information to help us describe <laughs> exactly what that is. And what, what's really st astonishing is that as performers and as evolved walking musical instruments, we have the ability to feel the emotion in its raw form when we're rehearsing and then to reproduce that emotion as, a, as an effort of, of emotional imagination and reproduce that feeling in a way that transcends the barrier between us and the audience but doesn't lead us into actually breaking down and sobbing or, or strangling the baritone standing next to us. You know, we don't actually go 100% anywhere. We, we have the capacity to inhibit that final 5 or 10%, which is, again, a... a part of our human evolution which is astonishing and the neuroscience is also kind of starting to quantify how the human brain is doing that a chimpanzee can't quant can't can't inhibit his calls in order not to be discovered absolutely stuck with it but we can <laughs> yeah so we've, we've got all sorts of things that we didn't know we had and it's uh, wonderful to know about them really yeah of the things that classical voice training has done um, over the last couple of years and continues to refine is, is our own workbook, which we will use on the five-day courses, especially as, as a guide through uh, Janice's pedagogy. I mean, um, Andrew and I sat down many years ago and talked about this idea of having a, a singer's guidebook that, uh, that we, we could have on the piano that would have lots of useful colour images for, for all the things we might need to reference. And, and we sort of... With, with Janice's help and, and Ron's help, we, we got on with it and did it. I mean, should we talk a bit about that process, Andrew? It was quite a process, wasn't it? Well, it was, yeah, you know, and, and it very quickly grew and we realised you sketch something out and you start to subdivide and subdivide and subdivide and what went from being a straightforward, as you say, a, a guidebook into something much more involved. And hopefully we can carry on developing this. And last year we added two new entire sections to the book. Uh, in light of new research, obviously the, the neurological things we're talking about now will we'll absorb into it as well. And I think we've also had discussions recently about how do we move this forward again in the post-COVID world? Can we find a way to make this more interactive? Can we find ways to embed um, exercises into, into a, a, the book, more like an app format, but then an app format doesn't work if there's no feedback with the, with the, with the teachers. So, you could sit there and, and, and sing through an exercise, think you did it marvellously, and actually sticking your chin forward. Or yeah, yeah, that's no use at all. So we need to find a way that we can keep keep assessing this. And I'm doing some research at the moment with a couple of app developers in terms of how how much can we do this? How much can you limit things to say, yeah, this is you're doing making that sound in the right way? It, or will it always involve an interaction with the teacher? Probably. Okay. 
probably. Probably. Hopefully, hopefully, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Technology's moving on at a hell of a rate, isn't it? And our ability to analyze sound and so our, our, vocal our, acoustics. Our workbook will, will hopefully become more interactive as time goes on and, and be a, a useful um, a useful item for any teacher, any even a, a repetitor to have on the piano to, to dip into and look at. And certainly for, we always wanted it to be a, a reference for singers to look back on after the courses, there's, 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 a, there's a lot more. Course, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. There's a lot more in in the work work with them. We can ever cover on a course, and the notes that people make during the courses, they can be refer back to later on in in the studio. So yeah, something we always wanted to do, wasn't it? For the past what 15, 20 years, and absolutely. Before we had some time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Talking about yeah. time, I remember. You know, we. I was in the middle of a full rehearsal schedule at Covent Garden. I think I was doing two or three productions at the same time. And I remember coming back, getting home at about 11 o'clock, having done a full day, and then sitting down at the computer and talking to Andrew till one or two in the morning regularly yeah. to get it done, didn't we? Yeah, it's enjoyable. I mean, obviously, same with you, Jan, when you wrote Sat, you know, putting down what you know onto paper, it's... it's it's challenging, but it's also really rewarding when you, you realise how much work you've done over the years, how much you've understood things. To see it in black and white is 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 a wonderful experience, really. Tiring, but wonderful. Well, for me, it was always three o'clock in the morning. You know, <laughs> and my, my darling late husband would say, you, you, you're busy again, aren't you? Now get up and go downstairs and do some more writing. Oh, all right. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny process, isn't it? Just think things. That is the thing, isn't it? When you when your brain's working on something, it keeps churning over and over and over. So we we I think each of us has sent the other a five a five a.m. email about something. <laughs> I can't sleep. I've got to get this off my chest. Got to do it now. Got to do it now. We've all done that. Like, what time were you up this morning, Jan? <laughs> James, what time were you? Up? <laughs> yeah. That's how we are. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's lovely. Yeah, and we also thought, didn't we, that the workbook <laughs> could represent. We could change it year on year, course on course, if we needed to, in a way that a published book takes much longer to do. So Janice's book is the full collection of essays, not just from Janice, but from all of the multidisciplinary practitioners that we um, refer to and use on our courses. That's the, Janice's original book, but the workbook could be something a bit more blithe that we could trial things and see whether they were useful and ask participants. And it's been a really interesting exercise for us, isn't it? Absolutely. And after every course, people are very keen, you know, to buy extra copies. And we haven't been able to do that um, so far, but we might just get into a format where we can. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, that's really I wasn't going to talk about that, but I mean, we could talk. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about what we've been discussing, Andrew, about what we might do with a workbook if people want to get access to it? I thought you just covered that in terms of the um, the interactive the form. app, yeah, or, or they might be able to get a copy from the website, maybe as well. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, sorry, mate, yeah. So um, obviously, this year with it being all online, we can't distribute physical copies of the workbook. So we will embed a copy, a PDF copy of the workbook onto our website, um, which will be interactive, and anyone that's paid for the course will have access to to the workbook for a period of time um not quite the same as having it on your piano or in your office but it will still be accessible for a while and further forward we are thinking generally of a kind of a subscription model for the company where all our resources will be available to people for a small nominal monthly fee 
and we'll do things like the webcasts and the workbooks and and the random things that we talk about that we never can quite find time time or opportunity yeah, to do it on the course so there's, there's lots of things we've got in the pipeline and maybe using some kind of like a patreon subscription model where we have people that, that subscribe to us to, to help us keep functioning when we're not when we're not presenting courses um so it will it won't cost any individual very much at all but it helps us to to develop things and, and it'll be useful for, for singers and for teachers mm. that's what we've talked about recently i think we our minds have been focused by by the lockdown and yeah. ways to keep working but uh, we can again be, be more effective for everyone and if anybody wants to email us you know our email address is info at classicalvoicetraining.com tell us what you'd like us to do if there's courses you'd like us to run if you feel that there's areas of voice science you'd like us to look into or uh, ways we can help you respond to digital teaching just email us and let us know Sure. we'd love to hear from you and we're also on facebook classical voice training we're on twitter at cvt ltd and instagram at classical voice training ltd so you know engage with us in all those channels and you'll see um we'll post uh, about new podcasts and we'll also post our live events there we're going to run a few more live events i think before our next course aren't we guys <laughs> we are we are we are Again, the thing is that you know we are geeky. We love we love talking about voice. We're just fascinated by it. And the reason we keep moving things forward is because if a new piece of information comes in, we have that growth mindset of like, oh, that's interesting. Can we find a way to absorb that? How can we thought, use that? Yeah, as a, a closed-minded, like, well, that contradicts what I thought. Therefore, that information must be wrong. We do forensically analyze everything, don't we, between the three of us, and Absolutely. say, does that work? Is that fit? Are we wrong about this? Where have we gone wrong? Have you read that? <laughs> Have you read that? And you know, it, to, to be part of that ongoing discussion for our our uh, course participants and and just people who want to be part of our community would would be great. We'd love that. Yeah. What's the difference between a geek and a nerd? <laughs> oh well, I think, I think a nerd is more is the the IT side of things. The geek is more anything that you're really fascinated by. But I am both a nerd and a geek. I don't mind admitting. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Andrew's also a coffee geek. I'm fast approaching a coffee geek, but he takes the gold medal for uh, <laughs> nerdiness in coffee, don't you? Yeah, if we say, I'm going to get really geeky now because with, with making espresso, you've got three elements you've got resistance, and you've got pressure, and you've got flow. It's exactly the same as singing. <laughs> And we spray the aerosols every day, brothers. Like the coffee smell goes all through the house. Absolutely, yeah. So, so my ultimate aim would be to, to find a way to demonstrate espresso making on one of the CBT courses uh, to, to sing. It's the same model. It's exactly the same model. <laughs> Get the participants to taste the shots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what you think. <laughs> Watch the face, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> my ultimate ambition. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get there. <laughs> I've just invested it in a new machine, so um, I've, gone, I've gone up market now in my espresso machine, so this is my final destination machine, so I'm, yeah. I'm delighted. And that is as, as geeky as you can get with that one, so. Absolutely. Fantastic. So there we are, classical music and coffee and everything else I think we've covered today, haven't we? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. So we will see you all soon. Yeah. Cool. <laughs>